Hey, podcast family. In this session, I have a special guest who's actually joined me in a previous episode, but we'll get to her in just a minute. But for right now, here's a clinical question that I actually got from one of our podcast family listeners, Hannah. Hannah, this was a great question, and I'm going to throw this out to everyone because the answer may not be as easy as you think it is, or maybe it is. Well, let's see here in this episode. Hannah had a question. How long do you have to wait after treatment for cervical chlamydia that's found in an asymptomatic patient before placing an IUD. Hannah was concerned about leaving her patient unprotected from undesired pregnancy because she was at risk for that, but she also wanted to protect her from potentially raising her risk of PID. Is it required to wait three months before IUD placement? In other words, waiting for the CDC recommended retest to check for new infection? That would leave a pregnancy vulnerable patient vulnerable for three months. Well, let's make it even more high risk. What about having a chlamydia or gonorrhea PCR return positive in an asymptomatic patient that's collected at time the IUD was placed? Does it then have to be removed? So we're going to set the record straight and review helpful data specifically dealing with this question. And we're going to talk about the landmark contraceptive study called the CHOICE Project that was based in St. Louis at Washington University. We're also going to address a likely more common issue, which is IUD placement and bacterial vaginosis. Is vaginitis a contraindication to IUD insertion? What about trichomoniasis? We're going to answer all of these questions and get to our special guest coming up right after this quick break. So thanks for joining us. Let's cover IUD insertion with gonorrhea, chlamydia, BV, or trich. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. My name is Carly Hager, and I am a third-year student at Texas A&M, and I'm Dr. Choppa's special guest today. So intrauterine contraception is one of the most effective, reversible birth control methods available to women. Despite its effectiveness, many patients and clinicians still have concerns about the risk of upper genital tract infection with the use of these agents. The Dalkin Shield, an intrauterine device available in the 1970s, was associated with increased risk of infection due to its braided polyfilament tail. Carly, what a good point. I mean, the idea is this is not your grandmother's IUD. Not that your grandmother had an IUD. (laughs) Was that inappropriate? (laughs) All right, but the idea is, of course, that many clinicians still buy into that fear. That's old IUD relationship, but it's not the case anymore. All modern IUDs, like the Copper T and the Progesterone IUS, they now have monofilament tails that have been documented all through clinical trials to have a relatively low rate of infectious complications. And I'm going to show you that through the St. Louis Choice Project. Great data that's coming up just a little bit later in, in the podcast. So here's the idea. Back to Dalcon Shield. Dalcon Shield was a great idea gone wrong. Okay, because the little retraction string was braided. So basically, Carly, it was like a wick. So anything in the vagina just got whipped up to the uterine cavity. And then the body of the IUD was very irritative. So it basically made this really inflammatory response to the uterine cavity, which is what copper tea does. But you add that to the braided uh, string, and it's a recipe for horrible uh, outcomes. So today's IUDs, just to be very clear, uh, nothing is 100% you know, without risk, but the risks are are very, very small, specifically in regards to upper tract infection. I'm going to show those numbers in a little bit, but they are all fantastic and they share nothing in common with the former versions. 
All right, Carlene, real quick, just some quick information about what's required before an IUD insertion. The truth is very little, right? Make sure they're not pregnant. Make sure they're not actively infected with something bad, and that's it. Among healthy women, few examinations or tests are needed before insertion of an IUD, and that's straight from the college and the CDC. Bimanual examination and cervical inspection, those are things that are recommended to do just to make sure we're not missing some kind of weird uterine mass or ovarian mass before we place the device. Baseline weight and BMI measurements are also recommended, but that's not necessarily to rule out a candidate for an IUD. That's just part of normal health maintenance so we can track weight over time. And here's the important part. It has to do with the STDs that started off this whole discussion. If a woman has not been screened for STDs according to the traditional screening guidelines, then it can be performed at the time of insertion. That's called same-day testing. ACOG does not call for a universal screening for STIs for every one, but it does recommend it for those women who are at risk. Like, well, who's at risk? Well, multiple sexual partners, prior history of STIs, those under the age of 26. Uh, your basic ideas of who's at risk for an infection, you can screen. And of course, it's, it's fine to do it universally. It's very conservative, but there is that distinction between universal and those at risk for screening. Obviously, women with current purulent cervicitis or symptomatic chlamydia infection or gonorrhea that is, they're having copious discharge, inflammation, or pelvic pain, should not undergo IUD insertion. That is the CDC Medical Eligibility Criteria Category 4. However, a symptomatic review identified two studies that demonstrated no differences in PID rates among women who were screened positive, in other words, they were asymptomatic for gonorrhea or chlamydia, and underwent concurrent IUD insertion compared with women who were screened positive and initiated other contraceptive methods. Indirect evidence demonstrates women who undergo same-day STD screening and IUD insertion have similar PID rates compared with women who have delayed IUD insertion. So, the CDC endorses same-day testing for women who need it and IUD insertion without awaiting test results. Oh, that's a big thing. You see, so you don't have to say, well, let me screen you now and then come back in a week. Mm-hmm. Now, that here's a catch because this gets into Hannah's question. We're going to answer this at the end. If you can do, because this is mind-blowing, it really is. If you can do same-day testing and place the IUD and then, oh, by chance, you find out, oh, she's got chlamydia or gonorrhea, okay, just treat her. But if you find out she has gonorrhea or chlamydia, let's say she comes in five days before and you screen her and it's positive, right now the CDC says you're supposed to wait three months. Wait three months, get tested, treated, and then if your test of cure comes back negative in three months, then you can place the IUD. Does that make any sense at all? Do y'all get the difference there? So you can do same-day testing, find out she has gonorrhea, and she's already wearing the IUD, and you can leave it in. But if you find out just a couple of days before, you have to wait three months. That makes no sense. That is what in medicine, Carly, is called a disconnect. Mm-hmm. I mean, it places patient at risk for pregnancy. So if we were talking about absolute numbers, and me and Carly talked about this a little bit uh, earlier in the day, the risk of PID with IUD insertion, we're going to get into this numbers. this comes out of St. Louis, is less than 1%. Well, the monthly pregnancy a probability, remember, that's called fecundability. That's a nice word, fecundability. Fancy. <laughs> Fancy. The monthly fecundability, assuming there's no infertility issues, right? The chance of a couple getting pregnant per month is about 22%. I mean, are you kidding me? So we're, we're, we're risking the we're, – we're putting on aside the 1% risk of PID, but at the same time, we're leaving them at a 22 potential risk 
22% potential risk of pregnancy. So, Hannah, just to answer your question right off the bat, while the CDC says, oh, you need to treat them first and then wait for three months, the whole fact that you can do same-day treatment uh, and then treat them afterwards if, they fa- if they're found to carry the, the infection is absolute proof that you don't have to wait for three months. And that data is not – that's not my opinion. That comes out of the contraceptive choice project that we're about to get into. All right, podcast family, real quick, so I want to address something with Carly here. We're talking about cervicitis, right? The idea of tracking bacteria up from the cervix into the upper tract uh, with same-day IUD uh, insertion, which we already know is very low. But here's a side question. What if you find the patient has BV or TRIC? Okay, so you put the speculum in, you're like, oh, there's some creamy white discharge in there that looks a little bit off. Uh, And you do either a wet prep or you do your VP3 test. You're like, oh, you've got BV. Can you place the IUD? So we're going to have this discussion real quick because in my mind, right off the bat, before you do a quick data search like we did, um, you're like, I don't want to do that. I mean, the vagina's got an infection. Obviously not with trick, but the CDC answer will surprise you. Carly, tell us about that. So the CDC states that TRIC and or BV is medical eligibility criteria category two for both copper T and progesterone IUSs. It's category two, meaning that insertion and continuation are allowed. This kind of makes me uncomfortable, but the data linking these two vaginitis conditions to PID is just not there. So I hope you all got that. So BV and trick, as kind of uh, uncomfortable as that makes us feel, right? Yes, you can place an IUD with that. The answer is yes. Remember, medical eligibility criteria two, which means that the benefits largely outweigh the risk. You're like, I don't believe that. Well, you can go to the CDC webpage and look that up because it's in there. So <laughs> now again, just because you can place it doesn't mean that you maybe should place it. Remember, can and should in medicine are two different things, right, Carly? I mean, we talked about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea was, you know, can you resuscitate a 21-weeker? Yes, but should you? I don't know. I mean, that's, you yeah. see the difficulty correct. And so that's why can and should are two different things. But if somebody ever asks you, can you place an IUD if TRIC and BV is found, and assuming that's all that you find, there's nothing else going on, CDC says, yes, it's category two on the eligibility chart. But should you is probably a separate question. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, as we get ready to wrap this thing up, a quick word about the Contraceptive Choice Project. This was a cool study. I remember when this was being done. This was a big study, okay? So let's cover this because this helped kind of ease the fear of this whole IUD, PID thing. I mean, I trained that you couldn't give an adolescent an IUD. 
I mean, it was like, we can't, we can't, we can't go there. Like, literally, we couldn't go there because uh, the uterus was like, hasn't been touched. Uh, we didn't want to risk infection and infertility uh, and PID. And those are real risks. I'm not making light of that. But the chance of getting that is really small. Obviously, now ACOG and uh, uh, AAGL, everybody recommends, I mean, LARCs for adolescents because they're so good. But let's focus on contraceptive choice real quick. The Contraceptive Choice Project went out of Wash U in St. Louis. This was a prospective cohort study of over 9,000 women. Is that crazy or what? From 14 to 45 years of age, all in the St. Louis area. And they were all interested in starting a new form of reversible but effective contraception. This was sponsored by the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. At enrollment, participants were counseled regarding long-acting contraceptive methods with the goal of increasing awareness of all reversible methods. Participants were also tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia during enrollment and were provided with contraceptive at no cost for two to three years. Now, although this was spanned several publications and has launched several studies since then, the original article can be found back in AJOG, the Gray Journal, back in August of 2010. That's the original choice uh, project first publication. Well, what happened? What were the results? Well, the results were that the rates of PID in IUD and non-IUD users who tested positive for gonorrhea and chlamydia at baseline were 1% or less. This low rate of PID among women who tested positive for gonorrhea or chlamydia could be attributed to their prompt antibiotic treatment. That's why we do same-day screening because the risk of it brewing or going up the genital tract is very low if you identify it and then treat it. The catch is not identifying it at all. So it's not that they have it, it's that they have it and you don't know. So you have to screen for it if they're at risk. But you don't have to wait for the results because as long as you intervene quickly, their chance of it becoming more severe, it having more severe sequelae is actually very small. So the authors concluded, quote, the occurrence of PID in both IUD and non-IUD users was rare in this cohort of this choice study of over 5,000 IUD users. Remember, the entire population was 9,000 participants, but over 5,000 who had the IUD found that PID was a rare complication of IUD use, even among women, here it is, guys, who tested positive for gonorrhea or chlamydia at time of insertion. So my question to the CDC would be, CDC, thank you for what you do. But if there's a very low rate when they actually have it and you place it, if you find it five days before or a week before, why are you punishing those women to make them wait three months? I mean, the contraceptive choice study, Carly, told us, one, look for it. Uh, but don't punish women by having them wait. And three months is a long time. So I wanted you all to see that. It's not my idea. That, I mean, well, you can definitely wait for three months. That is the traditional CDC rule. If you find it before insertion, not same-day testing, to wait three months, look for the test of cure. But is it absolutely necessary? And is that the most evidence-based? The answer is no. All right, so we've said that. Now, Carly had a good point here as we went on a quick break that you all didn't hear. Uh, If the chance of PID was the same between IUD wearers and non-IUD wearers, do you see how it really had, what, nothing to do with the IUD? So that's an important take-home. I mean, you really should go back to the AJOG, again, August of 2010. You can take a look at the, it's voluminous, all right? It's like, get ready for your multiple-page study. But it's great. And again, it spawned a lot of different studies from that. But that original article really says, whether they got the IUD or not, the rate of PID was the same and it was low. 
All right, guys, and I'm not diminishing the whole idea of PID. Trust me, we have plenty of PID diagnoses in our patient population. I'm just saying we should probably stop throwing the IUD under the bus because that is a leftover remnant of that daggone Dacon shield. Carly, are you learning something? Oh, yeah. Okay, so here's the catch. Let's say we place this IUD. Fine. She ends up with PID. Remember, PID, all clinical-based diagnosis, right? CMT, uh, uterine tenderness, or adnexal tenderness. One of those three clinical factors gets you the diagnosis of PID. And then the other ancillary things increase the specificity, like white blood cell count, uh, TOA on, on ultrasound, purulent dyster. All that is ancillary, but it's all clinical. Cervical motion tenderness, uterine tenderness, or adnexal tenderness. One of those three, in the right clinical context, gets you PID. Right, so great speci- great sensitivity, poor specificity. Fine, but let's say our patient now develops PID and has the IUD in. What do we do? So, as for removing the IUD once a diagnosis of PID is made, this is what the CDC recommends: "Quote: The woman should receive PID treatment according to the national recommendations and should have close clinical follow-up. If there's no improvement within two to three days of initiating this treatment, providers should considering removing the IUD." All right, and that's a change because when I trained, and it wasn't that long ago. By the way, before we came back, Carly called me old. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) I'm not old, I promise. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) But when I trained not long ago, uh, if you had PID, I mean, you took it out. I mean, the IUD is a foreign body. Uh, And so we've learned a lot. No, you don't have to take it out. The rule is wait for 48 to 72 hours. And if they're not improved, which is rare, then you can consider removing the IUD. And that goes into part of shared decision making. All right, podcast family, let's wrap this up as we come back. Carly, always good to have you. Yeah, it's always good to be here. All right, so let's wrap this up. Hannah, thank you for your question. It's a great podcast suggestion. So what do we do with this thing? Let's wrap this up as we bring this home. Ultimately, it comes down to shared decision-making. So the patient should be well-educated on the importance of medication compliance for STI care and should also be told the traditional course of action to wait three months for the IUD to be placed. But three months is a long time to have a lack of effective birth control. Based on the choice data and overall low risk of PID in these cases, consideration may be given to insertion after medication is completed. Well, there you go, podcast family. So we've t- covered a couple of items here. IUD with cervicitis, IUD with vaginitis, and the Choice Contraceptive Project. Carly, thanks for being part of our podcast episode. And for all of you, thanks for being part of our podcast family. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.